I think it is a really solid film. Um, as a heist movie, I think he gets to really show his craft as a filmmaker. So as when you think of a heist, it's something that's secretive, that's always moving. Um, and he reflects that in the camera movement because there's not a lot of still shots in the, in the film. It's very contrasty because there's like a lot of secrets. It's just a lot of stuff that I think are nice touches and that I think shows that even though this is not his signature style, he knows what he's doing. Yeah, I mean, the film's awesome. I mean, the film is fun. The film is smart. The script is smart. The directing is really well done, obviously. Um, It was the first time I'd seen so many cameras. Like, some of the bank scenes were up to 11 cameras. And I was like, I didn't even know you could do this. Like, this is crazy. um, Obviously, most of my memories are, like, working on it. So it's hard to, like, separate the film from my personal experience. Um, But the film itself... Just it's just a great take on a genre film, and we don't really get films like that anymore. Like there aren't many heist films, um, so it was cool to see a heist film that at the time was like modern and smart and fresh, and um, had but it had all the elements of like great seventies crime thrillers, um, and again was it was in the context of like cinema history wasn't owed to these these films that I had mentioned earlier. So it was a nod to Serpico and uh, Marathon Man and French Connection. And, you know, it was just it was just a nice heist film that was really well done. And I think it was just entertaining. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of a podcast directed by. This is our last episode on Spike Lee, where we'll be covering Inside Man and Black Klansman, um, which are, I think, like 10 years apart. So there's a lot of what we're skipping in between. Um, but we're going to start <laughs> with uh, with Inside Man, a movie actually you introduced me to. Uh, I remember hearing you talk about it, maybe on a podcast, maybe in real life. I don't know which. Do they? Is there even a difference anymore? Um, and I was like, oh, I did and I think I just I, want to let people know I don't talk about movies except if they're on a podcast. Just, I'm not going to waste those punches. Nope, not happening. Fair enough. And I remember hearing about this movie, but I don't think I it even occurred to me that it was a Spike Lee movie. Like I knew Clive Owen was in it. I knew it was like a heist movie. Uh, but you recommended it to me, and I am so glad you did because this is one of my favorite Spike Lee movies. Like it's, I think it's interesting. I remember we were talking about on our Scorsese month when he did Cape Fear and Ebert was kind of like, yeah, it's good, but like, come on, Scorsese, what are you doing? What are you doing this genre stuff for? Like you're, you're better than this essentially. But I kind of love when these great directors really dive into genre and like bring those talents to it because this is, this is one of my favorite heist movies. Like I, I, you know, I love the oceans movies, of course, the Soderbergh versions, but this is, this is rewatchable. This is fun. This has two or three fantastic performances. Both the leads are really good. I think Jodie Foster is pretty amazing here. Like, just a really kind of gutsy, ballsy performance. Like, in kind of different from a regular Jodie Foster performance. Like, and you got Willem Dafoe and Christopher Plummer. Like, it's got a great cast. And I remember there was supposed to be a sequel. And I'm so sad that, like, 
they never got the funding for it, which is kind of upsetting because like this movie made some money. It's not like it was a failure by any stretch of the imagination, but they just couldn't manage the funding to get a sequel. But I would watch two or three of these. Let Spike Lee do some genre work. I'd be totally fine with that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, okay, this is a uh, mystery box film, like in the, I guess, like, who's, is that more credited to J.J. Abrams or Damon Lindelof at this Abrams, point? Abrams, I, I think I Abrams at this point. Lindelof does the real work and Abrams does the mystery box film. <laughs> okay, so uh, <laughs> it's not that because they actually answer what's in ah, the box and it's yes. – uh, according to uh, Wikipedia here, the uh, screenwriter spent uh, five years developing the premise uh, before working on it. So wow. there was a lot of thought, I guess, put into how the uh, the heist would be, uh, at least in movie terms, uh, legitimate. You know how it would actually function and work out. Um, that being said, so you, like you mentioned the sequel, like I I don't know if I would really be that excited about a sequel. It'd be a strange one at this point. I don't think that well, sequels that take this long yeah. uh, usually work out too well for studios later, at this no. point. <laughs> yeah. Um, because a lot of like what is interesting about the heist is, uh, I, I guess like a, uh, does this come out before the prestige or after is this, is this after it has like a very like similar opening to where you have like a person sort of talking at you saying, I'm basically going to pull one over on you. It's the um, same year. They both came out in 2006. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so I'd, I think this one uh, beat it then. Cause I think this was early. This was like spring uh, mm-hmm. and that was the fall. Um, so you remove that element of it. Um, I guess you could kind of do something again, but I don't know if it works as well. <laughs> Yeah, Clive Owen and company come back and be like, going to trick you dumb bastards a second time and you're going to love it. Uh, I also think that there is like that, that sense of discovery you have with it uh, works really well as far as the dynamic that Owen as the thief shares with uh, Washington as the cop, mm-hmm. which is strange because Owen is not a very – and I'm talking about his character here – is not a very giving performer during the heist, as far as the back and forth cat and mouse nature, he is fairly stone faced. Uh, usually, uh, his face is covered, even though uh, in one sequence, Washington's character makes an attempt to unmask him, uh, which would kind of, I guess, throw a kink in things there. Maybe, but maybe Owen would be the one, I guess, you could unmask, mm-hmm. uh, and he could still maybe escape to another country. There's just like a, you know, there's an element of play here that really kind of supersedes, like, I guess your normal heist movie, like, where I don't think, I don't know about you, like, I've seen this a few times, and I kind of forget all the particular, like, nuances to exactly what Clive Owen and company want. I forget every time I watch it. I think I've seen it four times now, and I'm like, wait, why are we doing this again? Who cares? It's fun. Yeah, yeah. And so there's like this series of sort of revelations. So you bring in the Jodie Foster character and she has the, she's uh, been positioned to have the inside track as far as like, Oh, there's some uh, evidence of uh, Nazi profiteering here by our respected American businessman played by Christopher Plummer. Um, so I don't know. Like it's, it's one of those things that, you know, you mentioned oceans 11, you kind of just want to hang out with cool, rich guys who are dressed in snazzy. Right. And it's it's weird, like the heist itself is cool, but actually participating in it, 
there's really nothing cool about Clive Owen and company and the fact that they never reveal their faces. Nope. Uh, some of them, uh, I guess, spoiler alert, this far <laughs> into our Spike Lee month, this might be the one where I say, hey, if you've not seen it, you kind of could spoil a lot of the fun of this film. Right. So last warning. The, the participants in the heist have to like participate in playing the victim. Like yep. They have to take their turns. like mingling with the the lowly peasants who are like pissing themselves and thinking they're going to be shot and killed. That's a far cry from like what we're used to with like cool heist movies, but yet it remains a cool, fun heist movie. It's very like very impressive. This is like a contender for best for me, just because Mm -hmm. I think that Spike Lee injects a certain element of cool to this, uh, while having our lead, if you want to call Denzel, our lead here, (laughs) <laughs> mainly just seem desperate and kind of out of sorts. Yeah. Like, and yet he's still a cool character, even though he mostly is flying blind as far as what he's dealing with here. Yeah. I think a lot of that one is just Denzel is just cool. Like he's just, you know, got that persona, but also he constantly admits to being overwhelmed by the situation. Mm-hmm. Like there's yeah. no, there's no amount of, there is bravado, but it's not the bravado bravado that's dishonest. Like he has that, uh, this ability to still seem cool, even when he's like, yeah, you fucking got me. All right. I see. Well done. You know, he let, and I think also Clive Owen is a really smart choice just because if you're going to have a lot of voiceover, you need someone who sounds both kind of like clever and cool, but also intimidating. And I think Clive Owen is the perfect choice for that. Um, and like, if you're going to, if you're going to go toe to toe with Denzel, you got to be pretty good here. And I think this is, I mean, you know, Children of Men is always there, but this is one of my favorite Clive Owen performances. Like, I think he's really, he's really. The internet, I know. their brain just exploded when you're like, Children of Men. I mean, it gets on the shelf somewhere. I guess it's over there. I don't know. <laughs> Who really cares about that, though? Uh, we'll say not as fun as Inside Man. Definitely right? not as fun. We can all fun. agree on that. Yeah. And honestly, some of the most fun moments for me are with Jodie Foster. There's just something about her performance and also the fact you know, we go back to this, that she's tiny and like owns every scene she's in. Jesus. <laughs> she is. Fuck is with she's, you, Dave. she's diminutive. She is, especially compared to like Christopher Plummer, Clive Owen, Denzel. And it's really hard to hold your own when someone is towering over you. But she is so confident in those sequences and just so kind of cast iron that you're like, OK, I believe everything you, are, you say. You are cousin booger of this podcast. What is with you and your... <laughs> your obsession with the the, the height of short people Look, not, not only that i'm just calling see, them tiny see mike you don't get it because you are six feet tall you don't understand <laughs> <laughs> everyone is small to you <laughs> so you're you're picking on the on the right. extreme examples that's okay right. uh i guess that's good of you i don't know what you want me to say there that's yes, that's not good. not a good look dave uh but you enjoy yourself uh, yes, tiny little Jodie Foster talking shit. Uh, I I do like, enjoyable. but could also be a thankless part, and mostly because the <laughs> the mastermind thief here is just a roadblock where he basically is just telling people no, no, <laughs> like he's not negotiating. He's just saying no, I'm not going to give you that. I'll get out of my face, <laughs> and so. It's weird to have that sort of patter and that back and forth. So I guess a lot of it is with the people outside of the bank. Mm-hmm. 
because you can't have that repeatedly with a Clive Owen character because you're going to get frustrated as the audience. You're like, okay, I know he's hiding something. What's the big twist? Uh, but this isn't fun. And it can make your other two movie stars look stupid because they're just repeatedly getting the shit kicked out of them intellectually uh, by this thief. And that usually happens in these type of movies. But I think there's like some, what, fake victories for our mm-hmm. cops here where you sure. think like they've put the screws to not, I mean, that doesn't really happen in this particular heist movie. Like they, like the only thing you get is a revelation that like, Oh, they tried to bug, uh, these, uh, bank robbers. They have like a, an iPod set up to, you know, make them chase their tails and try to figure out which language it is that they're speaking, which they're not, they're listening to a recording and not only that, but, uh, the, <laughs> what is this? Like this, um, it's like this metal plating they send out. They've written on that have yep. their demands, which conveniently has it's a microphone. Bugged. So they yep. bug, they have bugged the cops. Like Denzel and company just take L's left and right yep. in this movie. And it's weird to me that people like this was a mainstream success uh, and people had fun with this. And also I applaud like Denzel and Jodie Foster for being two big movie stars that are kind of ineffectual, like yep. supporting players to the criminal here. Now, that being said, the criminal is attacking a Nazi. So Hard not at to one point, that. back in 2006, we could all be unified as a country saying, yeah, kick the shit out of him. I don't know about now. Um, I will say that I do love the ending for both of our, I guess, white hat characters with Denzel and Jodie Foster. Although I guess Jodie Foster is more of like a gray mercenary yeah, type. Gray hat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, she gets to call out the Nazi and her last sort of confrontation with him while also sort of profiting by her dealings with him. Uh, and Denzel gets, uh, you know, possibly a little bit of romance. He gets a nice, uh, nice rock. Better uh, for the to, size uh, of that ring. Good gracious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a strangely constructed movie uh, that I, I actually kind of – I don't think I actively avoided it, but I did not see this in theaters. I caught up with it on DVD uh, and I had a buddy, uh, uh, Travis that you've met say, no, 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 you should really watch it. And he was like, I guess trying to emphasize that there were some like quirks of this heist movie. And I wasn't avoiding it. Like, Oh, that looks like something that I would dislike, but I didn't yet understand that this wasn't just Spike Lee, you know, selling out or making like a safe play mm-hmm. that there were some really interesting work here. Yeah in a mainstream thriller. Uh, and it's, it actually is more depressing to watch now and see that this was an outlier. <laughs> well, that, yes, that, but it's an outlier in that, you know, Lee, uh, you know, was talking about, he couldn't get a sequel made to this, to a box office hit, his biggest hit. Couldn't get a sequel to that. And you would think Hollywood would want more of the same, like with the same characters. Right. Uh, but that it didn't open the doors for, for Lee to do, you know, some, some accessible work. Like he actually had to retreat the other way. Like he's going to Kickstarter and he's doing some like really low budget indie filmmaking. And this seems like a step to not only mainstream thrillers or comedies or what have you, but also maybe you get another Malcolm X cause he has a string of hits and yeah, it just didn't work out that way. Yeah. So what did you think of Chiwetel Ejiofor's character? Like it, it, I like his performance here, but it does feel a little slight for an actor of his caliber where he's just kind of the partner. Like, he seems to exist more as a hype man than anything else uh, to Denzel's character. 
like just there to go like yeah you got him boss like it's very it's a very strange and maybe it's just one of those like i want to work with spike lee so i'll do whatever that's fine i want to work so um i mean it's probably more a product of what uh i guess you know i'm laying the blame at the clive own character right whereas if the back and forth is between the the cat and the mouse here uh and you don't have that you have to have a little bit of it on the outside where it's basically right. just like running lines with, with each other, making it entertaining. Um, well, I, I figured you would have nothing against this character as an avid fan of Chasey Lane, that he's such an obvious boop guy. I mean, that's his, that's one of the visual gags, right? Yeah, Is that he just same cup size. <laughs> <laughs> he apparently never saw the, uh, you know, the, uh, was that a Seinfeld episode where it's like talking about like the, uh, the, the line of sight there, like in, <laughs> And, and admiring like a woman's chest. Um, He's very focused. The man some, knows what he likes. It's not subtle some of that about stuff. it. <laughs> like I understand, like based on the parameters of the heist, that you have to like, you know, you're going with like hair color, like height, <laughs> age. Uh, did that one? I mean, does that work for you? That we we have like such a broad visual gag. Uh, a woman's breast is like a clue to like who was one of the participants in this this uh, theft. I would love to tell you that, like, this offended me, <laughs> but I was highly mm. entertained by the whole bit, especially the fact that she kind of lashes back at them. Like, I, I enjoyed actually a lot of the interview portions where they were trying to figure out who was who, uh, like the joking back and forth between this older woman who was, like, on the verge of tears, but also entertained by Denzel's patter back and forth, you know, like, drug bank, like that, that stuff, like that stuff all really, really worked for me. Um... What what I I think I had trouble with in this movie is I felt like I was trying to figure out what the point of the kind of stereotypical racist cop stuff that was going on. Like there's the whole, you know, taking the head wrap off of the Sikh character and the discussion of, you know, someone who held a gun to a, to a cop's chest and shot and like just using all the turn like I'd rather be a what was what was the line like I'd rather be a live bigot uh the dead like it's just it felt a little bit forced to me like not like it was bad or not entertaining but it did feel like why are we why are we having this discussion like i don't understand why this didn't get cut like why didn't this hit the cutting room floor i I certainly think that's spike lee interjecting uh some of what he sees is just the realities of the world that um you know you will <laughs> in a moment of crisis uh you'll become sort of more your base self uh so i guess with that cop that particular story he was talking about uh not knowing i guess who the criminal was which i thought it felt like just reflected what you're going through inside the bank right you mm-hmm. like you don't exactly know the situation because you don't know who's friend or foe um and they're all strangers in this instance. It's not like they've met any of the people who are like being held hostage. But doesn't that that leads directly into um, something when he is about to use like the uh, the racial slur, everything? Like, doesn't he say something like, "You never know who's listening"? Like, mm-hmm. isn't that the immediate like, "Oh shit!" Like that that right. sort of thinking for Denzel Washington? Sure. I'm I. I do. I'm like you. I do one doubt that if that was in the original screenplay, that we have these moments of just sort of casual racism. But hey. I think Spike Lee, I think he just had to like you know he had to interject a little bit of his own personality and experience, probably with law enforcement right. as well, uh, into into something. So it's not just a, a glorified you know cops and robber type thing. 
That's true. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, it would, it would seem a little bit silly to have a Spike Lee movie set in New York about cops where there wasn't some sort of bigotry because that would ring kind of hollow and then you wouldn't really have his fingerprints on this movie, I guess. And those are the moments where you do, where I'm watching, I'm like, oh yeah, this is definitely a Spike Lee movie. And those moments are entertaining and they are good, but I guess I'm thinking from like a, a genre perspective. Like what is the, <laughs> What's the tie-in? And I do like what you said that that does clue him into like, oh, somebody is listening and that must be what's going on. So that stuff worked. The other thing that was a little rough for me was the whole like the video game thing. Like the, the kid with the violent video games. Like I'm not sure what it was. Like the Grand Theft Auto sort yeah. of knockoff thing. I was just like, what What lesson are we supposed to pull from this? Like, uh, yeah, I guess violence is terrible. Even the Even the criminal is like shocked by violence in video games. <laughs> like, I was just like... Look, man. What, how old was Spike Lee here? Maybe he's just a fucking old man at this point. Maybe that's that's him. Like, I don't get these these <laughs> fancy video games. I, one Maybe. of the movies I watched with them, uh, it was about the awards race for, for Black Klansmen. I guess um, on one of his social media accounts, his like live reaction to Black Klansmen, which is our next and final film, uh, being nominated for Best Picture, you get Spike's reaction, his sort of joyous reaction, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way he phrased, like, yeah, that was my son's doing. He was videotaping on his iPhone. Like, you know, it was just <laughs> he was videotaping on his and then it was like a beat. And he was like iPhone, like, you know, just to sort of like discuss that thing <laughs> that they do. Yes. Um, although, you know, he very much like, you know, I could see him doing like a iphone movie like his i guess uh fellow you know soderbergh's a fan of his he did okay. a couple of those things spike lee would make something interesting there um i i don't know like i i i i wonder if that was if they just struggled so much with clive owen playing a blank slate like mm-hmm. you have your bookends with him where he talks directly at the camera so you know like okay i'm gonna i'm i'm making some sort of pact with the audience I, I mean, he literally you tells you, saying. you need to listen. Like, it's very, yeah. it's very uh, in that way. He's not going to seem very interesting. Uh, and, you know, he's not going to be George Clooney. And it, they're just looking for any little interaction he could have with another person mm-hmm. that was not just stone-faced, go stand over there, don't mess with me. Um, and it does and show... he does that because he has the slice of pizza and the video game talk with a, a kid. And, and the other thing a is the kid is someone who can't be... Too, like, <laughs> I, it's funny i was about to go the other way the kid it's funny the kid and his father are the are two people who outright can't be used by the criminals because mm. that's that's one interesting thing like you know that you talk a little bit more about with jungle fever and it's a little bit of a stretch here but i do think it's probably on spike lee's mind is that uh the people who are able to disappear into any number any any type of walk of life they could be criminal or they could be your average citizen is not something that is gifted to minorities very often. They are already sort of like otherized. And right. so you had this black man and his black son. They can't be a part of those plans. But right. the white lady with the big boobs, <laughs> like her, her, her biggest, uh, you know, sign of distress she's going to have is the fact that she has big boobs. Like that's the biggest thing that others, her, uh, it, it's not heavy handed, but right. I do think that the, it probably had to be on Spike Lee's mind just a little bit. The people who are able to like, uh, be absorbed back into the city and to be anonymous uh, is something that he's never been able to experience himself. Mm. Yeah, that's true. And I will say, like, more than most heist movies, this is really rewatchable. 
Like, I have a hard time going back to a lot of, like, even, like, the Oceans movies, as fun as they are, as stylish as they are, like, I'm like, oh, yeah, I know what that is. I don't need to go back to that necessarily. I might watch it for fun, but, like, whatever. Whereas this, it's like, every time I watch it, I do feel like I'm kind of watching the heist for the first time again. Maybe because it is so convoluted. And unlike an Oceans movie, they don't explain every step of the way for you necessarily, at least not with like a voiceover. Like you do have to kind of put things together for yourself, which I appreciate that Spike trusts his audience enough to do that. A lot of directors don't. A lot of directors, especially in a complex movie like this, will sit and be like, okay, and step one is this, step two is this, this is how we get here, and this is how it all wraps up. Like you do, he does kind of just expect you to pick it up and follow along, which I think I kind of wish more directors did. I realize why they don't like, because I mean, let's be honest, the casual moviegoer, maybe it's not paying as much attention as you would need to, to kind of follow along, but he expects more of his audience. And I always like a director who actually expects something out of us instead of like holding us by the hand the entire way through. Yeah, this, you know, it's funny. This is uh, the one that (laughs) you're like, Spike Lee expects more of us. Uh, for Inside Man, I'm like, do the right thing. looking back at the <laughs> the things that we've talked about, and I'm like, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't in my game plan uh, for this particular conversation that was going to be thrown my way. <laughs> Just like uh, you know, I had to defend the porn stars, and he got game. You always have one thing. That's right. It's like you Dave, what? Never know, Mike. <laughs> you never know. I, I've already become a, accustomed to your hatred of tiny people, so <laughs> that one uh, now I expect that particular jab to come out. Um, I, I wonder if we're going to give an unfair sort of assessment with the gap that we have from inside man to 12 years later on black Klansman, because we're kind of going from, I guess, expected populist hit to maybe unexpected populist hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're missing uh, a lot of the, the struggle here. So I don't, <laughs> a lot of the misses. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, or or just the um, more experimental, you know, mm-hmm. attempts at storytelling uh, on a smaller scale. Um, but I I will say, and this is without hindsight, as I sort of lamented, I would not have expected that sort of if we were doing a podcast that there's going to be a twelve year gap in Spike Lee. Like he's still working, and yet we're choosing not to cover those twelve years in this thing. And that's part of that is because you go back to the eighties and he's producing classic films, right? But, uh, yeah, after Inside Man, uh, I think that's kind of uh, at least a, it's a tragedy in cinematic terms, not a real world tragedy right. uh, that we're having to wait 12 years to get to like a, like a next hit to talk about right. with Spike Lee. Yeah. So here's something that puts you in a good mood, you know, where you can watch Inside Man. Is it no. on stars? It is on stars, yes, sir. <laughs> everything, everything good's on stars. You know, that's. I'm sure there's a. I don't know if a 25th hour's on stars. I think I popped out the DVD for the for yeah. that one. So, but Inside Man, um, I actually own that. I bought that on iTunes. Oh, so I didn't look for stars. See? Putting Sorry. money in Spike Lee's pocket when I didn't have to. I could go to my beloved stars like a warm blanket. Where all <laughs> all all of cinema resides <laughs> on stars. Uh, unfortunately, our next movie does not uh, reside there. Uh, but we'll take a break and talk about uh, Black Klansmen. This, like a couple of the other films we discussed, was 
the story itself was new to me, like somebody, a black guy infiltrating the KKK. That was new to me. But just the topic of racism and the fact that racism is ever present in like every aspect of our government, um, the people that were supposed that are supposed to be protecting us, our races, that was not new information to me at all. Um, so um, I with that being said, I do think it is his best film in a really long time because he's had a string of really bad films. I just think it was a perfect movie for Spike to get into. I mean, it just it's right up his alley. Like, you know, it's satirical. Uh, it's a comedy. It's it's like off the cuff, so it fits exactly like his style, his personality, and um, it also allowed him the opportunity to again, as we talk about, do the right thing and the ending of do the right thing, but. The ending of Black Klansman was a perfect opportunity for him to connect errors and like make this logical connection between. And also going back to our conversation earlier about how these movies hold up because he attacks certain issues. I mean, Black Klansman is a perfect example of that. All right. So now we're back. We're back to talk about our final Spike Lee movie. Uh, Black Klansman, uh, which came out in 2018, starring John David Washington, Adam Driver, Topher Grace, etc. Uh, so this is a movie that you know really got Spike Lee back in in the public eye. Really, like you, you kind of talk about that long break that we are taking in between movies, but so did everybody else. Like it's not like Chirac was a runaway hit. You know, it's not like any of these other movies in that 12 year gap really <laughs> grabbed anybody. And, you know, it's kind of unfortunate because I do think, I do think that Spike Lee is one of our great American filmmakers, but whether it's because, whether it's because of pure money, whether it's because of like kind of personality stuff, like people don't want to support him for whatever reason. Like I do think in some ways we missed out on a lot of really good stuff, but I'm also looking forward to going back. And checking out some of that experimental stuff. Because usually when a filmmaker is this successful, you don't really get that kind of work. You don't get that experimental stuff because they're like funded by a studio and they get to kind of do most of whatever they want. So it will be interesting for me at least to kind of go back and check those out. Because most of those I haven't seen. I've seen Chirac, uh, which you talked about liking movies that are messy. There's a movie for you. That is a messy Messy movie. I still haven't... That's one of those movies I've seen twice and still haven't decided if I like it or not. Like, there are things I really like about it and things that just really rub me the wrong way. So, but there's a lot of interesting work there. Um, but uh, Black Klansman was uh, kind of, at least to me, a surprise critical darling. Like, this is not a movie I thought, like, when I first saw the trailer that, like, oh, this is going to get, you know, the Oscar. This is going to get nominated for Best Picture. Because is this the first... Of Spike Lee's movies to get nominated for Best Picture? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. That is incredible to me. Like, just in the movies that we've talked about, the other nine movies, there's at least three or four there that I'm like, really? There were, like, six movies better than that in in awards contention? That's incredible. Yeah, this is uh, by far, by far my uh, uh, least favorite thing that we featured on this podcast wow uh dare i say it i don't know if i like this movie uh i liked it more this time when i first watched it i thought 
uh, the Academy and film Twitter. I thought you were all crazy and um, <laughs> not to go back to bamboozled, but I felt like, you know, there was a time when Spike Lee was uh, making really uncomfortable cinema uh-huh. uh, and black Klansman is very much comfort food type material. Um, it's fun. I, I really uh, like the most, but I like uh, John David Washington and Adam driver. I, I like their dynamic. I like the scenes they share together. And I think in particular Washington, there's a strange like sort of quirk factor to his performance that I don't know if we see very often from black actors. Cause I don't mm. think that's allowed. Like right. you, you look at someone like Ryan Gosling who plays kind of quirky characters where you feel like he's added something just to keep him interested like in the performance, like he's brought something to the table. Right, right. And because he's like developed a persona of like, oh, well, he always does that, that kind of shit. You know, just, just let it go. Right. right. Um, this, this is a strange role. I don't know if it was Spike Lee's direction, like sort of leaning into the comedy, but like even the line delivery that Washington gives, and that's getting beyond the, uh, the sort of the plot aspect of it where he has to play, you know, an exaggerated voice maybe on the phone. Although I think one of the jokes of the film is it's not that exaggerated from how he normally talks. It's just the fact that <laughs> you don't see him as a black man. Yeah. <laughs> you don't see him as a black man. So suddenly he's white on the phone. Um, but yeah, the way he's introduced, you know, he's sort of like, <laughs> like not combs, but like pats down his Afro and the jacket. Like he's basically like saying, I'm a character entering a movie right now. Like mm. black Klansman, the title card, uh, he's got his uh, sort of uh, uh, karate reactions, like to to sort of aggravation. It is quirky, like to a certain extent. Where when I first watched it, it almost sets sort of an unreasonable expectation for me on how broad the comedy was going to go. And unfortunately for me, the only broad aspects after a certain point are the the KKK members, right. and I find them not only totally reprehensible, but just boring i find that i think they're just boring and like they're so they're purposely one note i don't really care to spend much time with them because there's nothing i can glean from scene to scene you know there's not gonna be an arc there with those characters so i don't share any particular fascination with uh you know this particular group of racists i understand the main characters like criminal plight like you know these are possibly dangerous people if left unchecked and just seen as like goofy or comedic then you're being disingenuous about what an actual threat they are to minorities like and it does feel very much like the cops here in colorado are like ah they're mostly harmless they're harmless assholes like you know we don't really need to like do much with them because what are they going to accomplish i think you have the adam driver character say that at some point like yeah they just talk a big game but they're not going to do anything um but it's it reminded me a lot of Baby Driver, strangely, which is a film that also introduces a lot of quirks and sort of broad comedy and then becomes kind of a generic action movie. I think this one does too. Like you have this bomb threat and it becomes just a race to stop a bomb. And it was a little painful for me that this is the one Spike Lee wins an Oscar for, for best screenplay. And film Twitter seemed to be embracing it and pushing it. And I, I felt like it was one of the safest things Spike Lee's ever done. Not necessarily argue, bad. I would argue the safest thing he's ever done. We so talk- to reward the man for doing the safest thing, 
just feels terrible because he's such an audacious filmmaker and mm-hmm. so bold that I don't know. Just it just left a bad taste in my mouth, I guess. Yeah, um, I have a lot of thoughts about this movie. Uh, one of the things I read about it that I really that I really when I read it, I was like, yeah, that is one of my big problems with this. Is this is a movie about racism for white people? It is comfortable. It is easy. It is not subtle. We talked a lot about do the right okay. thing. What? On what you just said. Is it that different then in that regard from Green Book? No, it's not. See, this is what I, <laughs> this is the point I was going to get to. I do think this is a much better movie than Green Book and a, you know, but we won't get into that. But we talked about do the right thing about how to me it is so powerful because the people in it are human on both sides of the fence. That's definitely not the case here. And we kind of talked about what the public wants right now is very black and white, very simplistic stuff. And that is what you have here. I think most of the performances are pretty good. I think Adam Driver is good as always. Like I'm, I'm not convinced I've ever seen a bad Adam Driver performance. Like he's just pretty fantastic. I think Topher Grace is well, good. You'll miss David out on the, the last Star Wars movie, That's which fine. I'm sure yeah, just, <laughs> will not be uh, a tour de force for, well, for me, the actors there. Yeah, for sure. But like also he's, he does well with what he's given. Like, you know, I'm not expecting an Oscar caliber performance from a Star Wars movie. Uh, but I think he's good. I think Topher Grace is good. I actually don't like John David Washington in this part. Um, I what? think. Oh. Yeah. I think you What's can. What's wrong with you? Okay. So I think. You Can't can... accept the quirks, can you? I think Ryan you... Gosling, it's cute. It's adorable. Not from him. Not from You're talking Denzel's... to the guy who didn't like uh, Gosling's most highly rated movie. I'm not a fan of Blade Runner 2049. So you can keep your. Is that the most highly rated movie? For I mean, in terms of like re- critically, yeah. I mean, that was like everybody loved it except except me. Do you know that's... how you improve that movie? Uh, don't you allow <laughs> Dave? Just go with me here. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I will. I will lead you to the promised land. Uh, you allow Gosling to be Gosling, uh-huh. and his character instead of being a total sourpuss <laughs> is. Gigolo Joe from AI. Oh, I'm in. And he's investigating the Blade Runner. Like, just fantastic. Gigolo Joe finding robots. Well, anyway, you're hating on Denzel's uh, child and the legacy of the great Washington uh, actor lineage here. So I feel like a lot of the quirks don't fit. Um, I feel like this was a role that Spike Lee wrote for a Denzel Washington type. And he was like, oh, Denzel's too old. I guess I'll get his son. That's fine. He's just not cool enough uh, to pull this role off. I think he's fine, but I oh. just don't think he mm-hmm. manages. And I think that's why the so quirkiness saying... comes through is he leans on that because he doesn't have the smoothness that his father has. Okay. Sorry. So you're saying as written for Denzel, it would not have come not come across as quirky, but just like a swagger yeah. or sort of like that's a the braggadocio for sort of nature. Yes. Yes, exactly. Mm, I hadn't thought about that. And I think it makes it such a better performance if you have that here. Um, And it just, you know, he's fine. He's serviceable. But, like, I just wanted more. I feel bad watching a movie called Black Clansman. Like, you know who I really like? That Adam Driver. You know? Like, like, this feels terrible. But I do want to hop on the point you made about the the racist being a joke. Um, So I also feel like this robs the movie of any stakes at all. I don't think there's a single moment where you feel like anybody's in true danger, even when they're chasing down a bomb. You're just like, these people are fucking idiots. 
there's no way that this is going to work. And even the scene, there's like a, for me, a horribly painful scene where two of the racists are like talking about the N-word and snuggling in bed. And just like, and it's so silly and so over the top that I'm like, man, not even the most racist person I've ever met talks like that. This is ridiculous. So it like takes me out of that moment. And you should feel, it should be clever, but you should feel some sense of danger in this movie. Otherwise, like, what's the point? You know what I mean? Like, it just, and plus, you know, I talked about this being a movie about racism made for white people. The fact that by the end of the movie, it's like, yay cops by the end of the movie, despite the fact he's with this woman who's like, all cops are pigs. And she's like now involved herself, not only with a cop, but just like everybody like smiles and gives a thumbs up. It looks like a Mentos commercial at the end of this movie. And I'm just like, I can't, I can't deal with this. Like this is, it feels like, and coming from Spike Lee, this is shocking. Because it feels, by the end, it feels like police propaganda. And I was just like, what movie did I walk into? And I just, I like Spike Lee a lot, and I expect more from him as a filmmaker than this. Like, I don't think he could ever make a truly, like, amateur film. Like, he's just a great filmmaker. He's good at what he does. But this is, like, definitely, I think, out of the movies we watched, no, definitely, this is the worst of the bunch. It's not a bad movie. It's totally serviceable. It's fine, kind of middle of the road. But like with all of the buildup from this movie, I was like, this is going to be great. I can't wait to see this. And then I saw it and I was like, that, this is the movie we're all freaking out about. I felt like that about Joker this year where everyone was talking and talking and talking. And I saw it and I was like, that, that's what we're talking about. Like, there's not that much here. Like, unless you've never seen a movie about racism in your life. Like, I don't, I don't get it. Honestly, I don't understand. 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, there was some controversy, as I recall. I think uh, Boots Riley, uh, which he had, sorry to bother you, the yep. same summer, right? Yep. Was I, I don't remember if he was, was he not a fan of the film itself, or was he talking leading up to the film as far as like the source material? Both. I can't remember. Both. It was both. Both, okay. Was, yeah. He was not a fan. So what was it, what were the particular issues that uh, he he had? Was it was it the changing of the narrative or just just the some story it, in some general? Of it, some of it was the changing of the narrative and some of it, like Boots Riley in particular, is very anti-police. Um, so the way this movie framed the police officers as like basically, except for a couple bad apples, like all of them are pretty nice guys. Like, because that is kind of the way it's framed. There's one like super racist cop and I guess like the... The chief is not super great, but all of the guys he works with are pretty, pretty awesome, man. Willing to help him out, you know, pretty good dudes. And Boots is like, what? What, what cops did you meet? Cause that is not how white cops were during this time or during the time we live in now. So, you know. Uh, I'm also seeing, uh, I guess apparently his partner, uh, Ron Stallworth's partner was not Jewish. So I guess that's just. Mm some extreme dramatic license, which it is. It, does, it produces it, some good it does scenes lead to like one particular scene. That's great. Where he's kind of talking about like not being raised, being Jewish and now kind of like, Oh, now it matters. And like kind of connecting all the, yeah, dots. never having to think about it yeah. before. Yeah. Uh, and the bombing, I guess was fictional, which I have a bigger problem with that because I found that stupid yes. <laughs> as I was watching it. Um, uh, yeah, I, uh, I think, 
part of it is like, you know, especially now uh, with the sort of social justice aspect of, uh, I mean, this isn't even social justice uh, when you're rooting for movies to win trophies. I don't think like representation and people right. actually being able to achieve their dreams and have like a fair stake in the profession that they choose. Right. Yes. Uh, which one <laughs> wins this award? Not so much. Um, right. Although I am happy I think, for yeah, Spike Lee generally, like it does feel a little like, oh yeah, we'll yeah. Give I mean, I, I mean, yeah. It's it's. I, I'm I'm glad that he's happy. Right? He seemed right. to be ecstatic to to yeah. win the Oscar like, finally, and well deserved for you know a lifetime achievement award. If you want to look at look at it like that, fine, whatever. Um, but yeah, there there does seem to be this. It's this kind of crass way of looking at it, to where it's like, you know, Spike Lee doesn't need you to take up for his art. Like, if if he produces like a subpar Spike Lee movie, he doesn't need your like, <laughs> you know, positive tweets to be like, right. okay, I didn't like it that much, but by God's a Spike Lee movie, so. We all better just let's just take a meeting and we're all going to say like, this is great. And don't, (laughs) don't speak out otherwise. Like he's, he's obviously gone through a lot in his life and he's been in the business a long time. Uh, you don't need to, to like fake hustle enthusiasm for Spike Lee joint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it is weird how those moments sort of come together. Uh, because yeah, they were not, (laughs) and we're not on this podcast around for the 12 years of, various film productions that he put together uh mm-hmm. but yeah it becomes a sort of calling card of like i don't like the kkk and i like spike lee how this brave. is fantastic <laughs> <laughs> so i will say this though like even though i'm not a big fan of this movie um it does have i think back when this came out i called this scene my favorite scene of 2018 like i think there's one scene in here that just blew me away and there's a scene uh, with Harry Belafonte uh, telling the story of a man who was lynched um, on the streets. And it is profoundly moving. And like as a short film is a work of genius. Like I, the way it's filmed, the music that's used, the images that are used. It does feel like Spike Lee going back to his documentary chops a little bit right in the middle here. But it is fantastic and worth watching all on its own. And I just wish the movie built around it was better. You know, it's really unfortunate because there's some good work here, but it just never kind of coalesces and comes together for me. See, and here I am uh, just wanting more like karate kicks and like chops from uh, <laughs> from Denzel's kid, which you hated. <laughs> you despised him. Uh, I don't know. Like, I, I guess I'll go back. I'll just disagree with you. I think it's a different type of uh, swagger. How about that? It's uh, it's just, not one that we're I'm just never convinced that he's confident throughout the whole movie. Like, I think, and that's why, like, the ending, which should be so fun when he, you know, reveals to David Duke who he really is, it should, like, really pack a punch for me and be really entertaining. And I'm kind of like, oh, yeah, I get how that's funny written. I get how that works. But, like, his performance just doesn't, just doesn't do it for me. I don't know. Hmm. I mean, his delivery of that, that great line, like, with a right white man, we can achieve anything. That's like, a pretty good line. <laughs> just pretty bring one in. <laughs> Yep, it's pretty good. It'll do. Yep, yep, pretty good. I, I do think uh, it is funny that uh, when this was like during Oscar season was going on, like I'd uh, I'd run into um, 
uh, a woman at the at the movies uh and she had she was going to see black clansman and uh this was a, a black woman co-worker and you know occasionally we just bullshit or whatever at work and i remembered like her assessment because and the, not that she's like a huge movie person you know mm-hmm. like a normal movie goer if something looks good she'll go right but you know she's not like keeping a, up with like the, a human the, being like a normal person yeah yes. <laughs> not reacting to the reactions of films like has no idea and i had not seen black clansman yet because i caught up with it on video and i uh, was like so how was it you know i I, i'm i was interested in seeing that one is it you know do you like it is it good (laughs) all she said was it sucked anyway (laughs) and then she just like (laughs) Uh, yeah (laughs) but it was funny like it was just like i can't imagine like getting on twitter and just being like black clansman sucked and the, the vitriol that you would get and this woman it was just like oh yeah i didn't i didn't care for it i didn't like that so anyway here's what else i did on my weekend right. like it just like Moving and that's on. a thing i did and now it's gone i will say one of the interesting thing i noticed about the reaction of this is the only people that i heard say negative things about black clansmen were friends of mine and people i follow on twitter who were black white people ate this shit up like just yeah oh my god so good like we, i was talking to our uh our mutual friend baruch who used to be the co-host of the cinema bun podcast which i wish was still around but sadly it is not mm-hmm. and we texted about it and he was like oh i got a lot of problems with this movie the more i think about it the less i like it and i was like oh that's really interesting because like everyone else i talked to of course on film twitter and all that mm-hmm. mostly white people and they were you know and you hate to use terms like this but it doesn't feel like you talked about this isn't social justice at this point it's more it's more like virtue signaling, right? Like, I really like this black film and I need people to know that I like this black film. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it just, there's good things about it, but this is nowhere near what Spike Lee can do, you know? And it's, you know, it's kind of sad that it's the same thing with like Scorsese winning for The Departed. It does, you know, it's it's one of those, like, I'm glad you won, but it does feel kind of gross. Like, uh... This feels like you're just making up for it because you know you fucked up for years and he has been a great filmmaker for decades and you kept missing the boat because you just like couldn't award a black filmmaker, I guess. You just wouldn't dare even nominate him for a Best Director Oscar. And now, you know, he wins for this screenplay, which is honestly, he's written a lot of great screenplays. This isn't on the list either. You know, like, I don't think this cracks his top five as far as best written films. Oh, no, 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 no. Um, yeah, I, w- I would say even though it's included in our 10 films, it does not crack <laughs> the top 10. Like no we could, we could have found something else to, to move in here, but it, I mean, it's interesting if you actually have a long form conversation about it, which I, I love the, you know, talking with the coworker I had about it just cause she so quickly just moved past <laughs> it. Um, and you and I are doing the exact opposite, but even though you and I are agreeing, we're coming down the same side as far as, I guess some like disappointment like if you've liked especially up to this point with this being the most recent output from spike lee uh you're like oh that's you know for this podcast we're saying it's not as good as the previous nine things we've talked about much less you know some other things um but it's not that simple like even uh if you're talking about just giving it a pass like there had to be people like you and i who agreed on it in a positive bent who both really liked it and it wasn't lockstep like every single thing is great about it. Everything's good. I liked it for this reason. You and I <laughs> disliked it, and yet we disliked it for very different reasons. I'm yep. saying up the quirk factor, and you're saying that's annoying as shit. Please, please stop. Someone that. be cool, please, in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> 
absolutely. But you know, there, there it is. Uh, but in terms of, I was just looking at his IMDb page. He does have a couple movies in production. One of them is an eighties hip hop retelling of Shakespeare's, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Uh, so that's feels, feels more in that Chirac area of stuff. So a little cute. Yeah. Could be a little cutesy. Yeah. So that's called Prince of Cats. And then something called The Five Bloods, which is about a group of veterans from the Vietnam War returning to the jungle to find their lost innocence. That's the that's the run. Uh, Giancarlo Esposito, Chadwick Boseman, John Renault, Paul Walter Hauser. So pretty good cast. So the thing that's really sad is like I don't see I don't see a lot of him writing in his upcoming movies, mm. uh, which always kind of, you know, kind of iffy when like, you know, you want it to have that flavor, that swagger that Spike Lee has. In his writing, but you know, still a great director, even Wasn't when it, he uh, doesn't do his own writing. I think I think that I could be attributing this to the wrong person, not, but I feel like it was Soderbergh. I just heard a snippet of an interview or, or read uh, saying that he loved making movies so much that he had to actually put aside the fact that uh, to have that love and fulfill that, uh, he had to give up on the idea that he was like a fast and like accomplished writer. And I think he like mm-hmm. used Paul Thomas Anderson as an example of like a career he could never have where it's like, it's not just going to be totally like born out of his sort of creative, like mm-hmm. id where it's like, he sees it all the way through the completion. Cause he would never do anything. <laughs> and maybe it's just one of those things where Spike Lee is like, Hey, I'm just like, I want to produce a lot of stuff. I'm like really passionate. I want to make some movies. Right. And if, if he's got to put, you know, pen to paper and create it from the start to finish, uh, you're not going to get as much spikely material, so yeah, I'm I'm not going to be I'm going to be greedy in a certain way that I just want to spe- see more spikely movies. Sure, uh, I agree with you, but if that means you have to wait, you know, five to six years for yeah. it, probably and he's, not. And he's in his late sixties now, so like, if he wants to produce movies, kind of like, okay, I got to keep this moving. I'm not going to spend five or six years crafting a movie and then come out with it when I'm 71 and then the next one when I'm 76, like there's only so much time. So let's, let's get some good stuff out there. And he still has the energy and the drive to create. So, yeah. I mean, it works for that hack Scorsese, you know, doesn't, doesn't ever, you know, I don't even know if that man can read. So that's who knows, like just <laughs> <laughs> takes his little camera around and points it at people and right. God bless <laughs> gets him. an MS paint and messes with the Nero's face. Okay. All right. That's enough out of you. <laughs> I am not letting you continue that conversation. We did that already. Uh, <laughs> so now we come to Mike's favorite part of every single month. Uh, where we choose our favorite, the best, and Spike Lee's masterpiece. So first, out of these 10 movies, which as a reminder, we covered She's Gotta Have It, Do the Right Thing, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X, Four Little Girls, He Got Game, Summer of Sam, 25th Hour, Inside Man, and Black Klansman. So out of those, which is your favorite Spike Lee movie? I think my favorite's 25th Hour uh, for some of the things I, I said as far as the, the look at, uh, in particular, male friendships. Because I do – we talked a lot about uh, maybe some problematic areas as far as having a female presence in Spike Lee films or lack thereof sometimes. And I think this one, at the very least, uh, you called it, uh, I guess, a reckoning with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems a little more pointed. Um 
with these guys sort of, I mean, you have these three very close friends that are in the process of sort of like isolating themselves from each other, um, because of decisions that they've made in the past. Like, and it is something that as you get older, you kind of have to face, like, especially if you have old friends and these old ties, uh, what, what you're able to accept from them. Like, because it's not like you can, you know, in childhood, it's pretty easy. Like, if you like the same sports team or you're, like, collect the same stuff or, you know, you're just in the same, like, sort of zip code, um, you know, that's really all you have to concern yourself with. But as you get into, like, middle age in particular, and these guys are facing, you know, one of them prison time, um, there's certainly a lot of challenges there as far as you're really having to reassess, like, those bonds. And... Okay. It is a bit of an outlier. I agree with you. You said, you know, that would be in our format. Uh, that would be quite the argument. Say this is Spike Lee's masterpiece, even if it was your favorite or you thought it was his best film. But I think it, I'm going to go with favorite because it's just something. It's a particular itch of mine I like to see as far as those type of stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's also, I mean, it's excellent. It's, you know, it's, it's perfect for yeah. me. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with favorite just because that's my particular, I guess, uh uh, jam uh, with him. So uh, I'm trying to think if was there a better male friendship in Spike Lee's films? I don't know. Like I, I think you <laughs> you Jungle get into Fever? some really. It's a great. Uh, you liked it. it you did. liked it, but man, you talk about betrayal there. It uh, didn't so, yeah, end well, I, but you know they seem they they do seem to still be friends though. I'll grant yeah. I'll grant you that. Yeah. Um, for me, in terms of favorite, I think I'm going to go with Summer of Sam. Um, and this. This director, more than any other, it would be so easy to pick the same movie or, you know, one movie for two of these spots. But I'm going to because, I mean, we've talked about it a lot, but Do the Right Thing is kind of a, you know, accepted classic at this point. Um, but Summer of Sam, and it, of course, makes sense that, of course, I would pick basically what you could call Spike Lee's Scorsese picture uh, <laughs> in Summer of Sam because mm-hmm. I'm yep. a big fan. Uh, but, you know. A lot more, uh, lot more women talking in a Summer of Sam than say the Irishman. So I just had to get that joke. I don't actually believe that. I just had to get that joke in. But I, I like the fact that the women are kind of the smartest people in the room, and the guys are all idiots because that, you know, that's kind of my experience too in general. Uh, and I like, I tend also to like movies that take risks and movies that subvert your expectations. And this certainly did that. This is not the movie it was advertised as, and I think. I think it's one of those movies, one of the few that I'll say, if you didn't like it when you first saw it, to give it another shot. I don't say that about most movies. Most movies, I'm like, oh, if you didn't like it, you didn't like it. But like this one, at least for me, is one that really kind of transformed on rewatch and is a probably Leguizamo's best, although that's probably not a big stretch. It's not like he's had like this tremendous. I don't, mean, don't be what mean. Else? No, like what else great has he been in? Like. I think he was really good in Romeo and Juliet as Tybalt. Um, he was in. See the Prince of Cats. He was. Yes, he was the Prince. Of there Cats. we go. Um, what about Chef? You don't like him as the supportive friend and Chef? Jesus He's loyal Christ. there. Uh, I don't think Chef. Uh, anyone was acting in those movies, so not Chef. <laughs> um, so it's the ultimate. Hey, I'm it's guessing like, we're not going to get a uh, John Favreau month. It's, it's like what, a Lion it's like King. A, and, it's like a Kevin Smith movie with a budget. That's all it is. Like all of our friends just hanging out. That's that's all we're doing. Uh, but I think it's his best. I think it's Adrian Brody's best. I mean, I think just all around, this is just like a really undervalued movie. Um, and one that I could watch and rewatch kind of over and over again. Like, I think it has, 
it has enough energy, like that spikely energy that I've kind of talked about, um, without it being like, I would never call it his masterpiece. Cause I think there is a kind of lack of the kind of race aspect that permeates a lot of his films and the, the depth there. But like, I, I do think it has, it does still feel like a Spike Lee movie, which is, which is a real challenge, but yeah. So summer of Sam is my favorite. So what is Spike Lee's best movie? Mike, are you sticking with four little girls? summer of Sam? Oh, look summer of you. Sam. All right. Yeah, of course. Um, it's got an orgy. Is that all? That's. <laughs> I mean, I you're not wrong. You were gonna you're not wrong. There. I was like, did my did Skype freeze? <laughs> nope, he's just he's still breathing. He's waiting for me. <laughs> uh, I think you're gonna see, uh, like you you talked about uh, removing the sort of race aspect of it. Uh, if you want to make the case for it as masterpiece, though. Uh, there are those those close ties, those bonds, the communal aspect of it, but this heightened sense of paranoia. And there's always paranoia about your fellow man in a Spike Lee joint. Uh, but this one, there seems to be an agreed upon reason from the community at large on like we're going to allow ourselves uh, the, the time uh, to uh, see the worst in each other, which is just a weird – it's like a Western. It's a Western mm-hmm. set in like the late 70s New York where – uh, we're allowed to sort of challenge each other on if they, if you are, uh, have the capacity for like horrible acts. Like, you know, you can sit around like a pizza parlor and be like, hmm, I think this guy could be pure evil. What about you? And you're <laughs> going to debate the merits of sort of unknowable evil, uh, mixed in with all of the guilt and shame that we talked about. Uh, on that particular episode, uh, about the sexual hangups of men and in particular the, the, the hangups they have with like, I guess being men and that I think the Adrian Brody character is probably the one that they explore that the most, um, as far as what it is to, to be a man, which can be like an evolving thing. It can be kind of unknowable to him. And you look at his friends in particular, like Wazamo and it like eats him up mm. that his instincts, uh, usually sexual in nature can be so far removed from how he, chooses to like see himself like he doesn't understand that sort of battle within himself whereas most people would just be like uh you've discovered a kink my friend you like that (laughs) you enjoy it you want to do it good if you're not harming anyone uh yeah and if you keep it in the home you could have a pretty good life uh but that scares you uh so i i think that it's just it's sort of a strange mess of a movie that as i said on my other show they got lost in that great year of 1999 where there were other movies from established filmmakers that just like, there was just too much good stuff coming out. And I also think, uh, kind of what I said about, uh, our Scorsese month with, uh, I had bringing out the dead as the masterpiece. I think it's sort of an outlier as far as the principal actors that he works with, um, where you don't see like you don't see Mira Sorvino or Leguizamo like you know returning to like headline yeah. another Spike Lee joint, so I think in that re- regard it sort of gets lost in the shuffle. But uh, I will forever be grateful that Spike Lee decided to tackle a serial killer movie where he was more interested in the the mob surrounding mm-hmm. that sort of a noble character and was not concerned in the slightest with trying to figure out like the inner workings of a guy who was talking to a dog Yep, and not in a cute way either. Not like in 25th hour. That was very cute there. That's that was very, very agreeable. And something I didn't, yeah, even, that is uh, the best. Something I didn't even think about is like, 
he's it does feel like Spike Lee is kind of fucking with the audience too because the movie opens with the serial killer talking to his dog like in silence so you do think like mm-hmm. oh that's what this movie is about and then he just takes that hard left and it's like nope we're gonna make it about fucking that's that's what we're gonna make this about like no you wonder, had to know that was gonna be the best for yeah me. no like, wonder there's Mike no other way it. yes so as far as my best, I really kind of struggled with this with at least two movies. I mean, if I was being honest, it would be between three, but I kind of going into this month, I kind of like, oh, I think I know what the masterpiece is. Like, I'm, I think I'm pretty prepared for that. Oh, look at you. So, uh, so confident, so yeah. assured in this. That's right. Uh, but best, like I, you know, flip flopped. I was thinking like 25th hour because that's a movie I really like. I really like it's, you know, kind of dissection of male friendship, both it's kind of good and bad and kind of shows all the, all the beauty and all the ugliness of that. But I do think, I do think I'm going to go with Malcolm X, um, as his best movie. I think it is because it's always fun for me to see an auteur like Spike Lee hook up with a particular actor and realize what he has in them. And I think that's what you get with Denzel Washington here. Um, I cannot, I cannot possibly imagine anyone else playing that role. I cannot imagine anyone else directing this film. It is a, despite the fact that it is a biopic and that it's historical, it still has that same energy of a Spike Lee film. Um, and although I understand your, your kind of qualms and your quibbles with that first hour, um, that stuff really works for me. Like, yes, he is kind of a pain in the ass. It's kind of a piece of shit, but he's also really charming. <laughs> Like he's really. I want you to to tweet out our Spike Lee wrap up with Dave calls Malcolm X kind of a pain in the ass. <laughs> Malcolm Little was a pain in the ass. I'm sure. I'm sure that was in his FBI file too. Like kind Probably. of a pain in the ass. <laughs> Almost guaranteed. But I think you, for me at least, I I'm glad to have that background. And yeah, it is a long movie. It's not a movie you're gonna put on, you know, once a month to be like, oh, just watch Malcolm X again. It's, it's you know. <laughs> That is a time commitment, You're a freak, my friend. I guess. Yeah, that would yeah. be a lot. Um, but I think also we didn't talk about this, but I also really like Delroy Lindo's uh, performance in that. Like, it's just kind of like from head to toe, pr- a pretty fantastic piece of art. And I, like you, generally am not a fan of the biopic, but the way that this is structured and because of the circumstances of his life and death, I think it's still really works for me and i do it's interesting like it's three and a half hour long movie but because he was gunned down so early in his life i do find myself as i'm watching it like wanting more and i think that is that's the mark of a great film if i could watch three and a half hours i'd be like but but i want him to live i want to see where his life would have gone it's a pretty impactful film so to me that that is his best uh so mike do we have the same masterpiece I mean, it depends on your your uh, views on Jungle Fever, I guess. We do not have the same. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> uh, no, we do not. I I assume that was the joke. Uh, I really thought about Jungle Fever. Jungle Fever is uh, like a favorite there because yeah, I I, I was that. just shocked how much I enjoyed it. Uh, my masterpiece though um, is uh, He Got Game. That's the masterpiece for yeah. me. And uh, I think. <sighs> Here, here's my issue with do the right thing for this format. It's kind of the same thing I have with Scorsese, I guess, on the first month with Goodfellas. I felt like I could put do the right thing in Anywhere. any category. Yep. And with Masterpiece in particular, I think what the one thing, the one thing do the right thing is missing for me is 
I don't think it's messy at all. Mm. I, I don't think it represents what you'd get for the most part with Spike Lee's work. Uh, and that it seems perfect. And that's, that's, that's only a knock in the regard <laughs> of like sort of how we're describing masterpiece. Right. Sure. So I think that some of the, um, overly long touches of he got game, uh, some of the, uh, I guess diversions, uh, this kind of fill in it's like particular moments with the characters, uh, you don't really see that and do the right thing at all. And that was kind of surprising to mm. me, like how clean and precise it was. It's not about precision. It's about like at different times, sort of uncontrolled rage, but it never feels mm. uncontrolled, like sure. from the filmmaker's point of view. And so I think he got game, maybe not in plot or story uh, is a lot closer to like summer of Sam or even 25th hour than it is to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And so I, I guess I wanted to have sort of like a, a better representation of like who Spike Lee is, is a filmmaker to me. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're just asking me which one is, I guess the better movie objectively, it's do the right thing, but he got game, the father son aspect of it. Um, the strained relationships uh, with the people that should be like your closest companions, be it like your high school sweetheart, be it family members, like <laughs> the uncle that just wants just a taste. Just and it's just taste. like upfront about it. Um, I, I really love how um, robotic and kind of alien family and friends are. Uh, and it's just the same as like these guys in suits, like these mm. agents, everyone just seems too slick and too assured uh, about a life that's not yet led as far as if you do this, then X, Y, and Z will happen. And uh, I, I will say, I think that he got game is infinitely more interesting to me on rewatch than do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Like I don't feel, I feel like I discover more watching it uh, on repeat than do the right thing. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like do the right thing at this point is a very like noble thing. Um, and so, yeah, that's why I'm right. And you most assuredly are wrong unless you're going to throw me a weird curveball here what and if, go with the great jungle fever. What if what if I chose my masterpiece as Black Klansman? What if what if I just like completely negated everything I said in this episode? That would show that would show such a lack of confidence in your own opinion, right. which is very much the viewpoint of a lot of movie podcasters. We're right. like, I got to cover know. all the bases. Everyone else says it's good. Yes. <laughs> Everyone else says it was good. So I'm going to, I'm going to call an audible here and be like, you know what? Uh, it, you're right. I didn't like it at all, but it's a masterpiece. It's a goddamn <laughs> masterpiece. <laughs> uh, no, the masterpiece is do the right thing. Um, honestly, I felt like I could have picked do the right thing for any of these three you know, yeah, favorite yep. best. Cause I've, I think I've watched it four or five times at this point. Like it's very rewatchable to me. And I think because does it feel dismissive to put it in favorite though, like it, it almost feels it, like it does a little bit up here. Yeah. It but does. It's so watchable. Bit. It yeah. is so entertaining and watchable though. This is, this is one of the things I love most about it is that it works as a populist film and it works as a quote unquote, like art film or awards worthy film. And it works on both levels. Very well, because as you mentioned, I would say if the movie's two hours long, the first hour and 40 minutes is like just a fucking cool hangout movie, man. Meeting all these, you know, and I think that's the thing that carries it for me in terms of 
being a masterpiece and being like a tiny bit messy. It is a tight film. It is precise, but you have so many kind of scattered characters that you only get little bits of. Um, and then you have the kind of relationship between Mookie and his girlfriend, um, which I think is a little bit messy for me. Like that stuff doesn't quite work, uh, for me. It oh, does... you're trying to reel me back in. That's right. Say, no, no, Mike, there's an imperfection here. That's right. So it does, it does okay. feel like that. That feels a little tacked on to me. Like it feels like a little like side quest for Mookie where he's like, oh yeah, I guess I should go visit my girlfriend and then never talk to her again. Like she never shows up. Like I, I, I love the RPG side quest and <laughs> like, do the right thing. Just like a side quest to go, uh, you know, rub ice on her nipples. That's, that's very important work that he's doing there. So. All right. God damn it. You pulled me back in. I'm wrong. Yes. I knew that this would do it. Masterpiece. Um, and it, you know, but it also like, it does like I've talked incessantly about this like energy and this swagger and this this thing that Spike Lee has and when I think of that this is the movie I think of right and it completely amazes me every time I think about it that this is three years after his first movie that he made this like it's fucking incredible and it makes me wonder You're saying he peaked early that's not what I'm never saying. once got close to it again it actually got me wondering. <laughs> Like, not if he made that movie, but if Spike Lee was a white filmmaker and he made a movie that good, what would change? You know, what opportunities would he get that he didn't get, you know, because of the color of his skin? And maybe it's nothing. Maybe he decided, like, no, I really want to do a movie about interracial relationships. But it does, like, white filmmakers, when they do well, tend to get, like, everything under the sun, and he has to fight for funding. Uh, it does make me wonder how things would have changed. Would he be... Like, oh, every movie he makes is an awards contender. You know, because the way, because what happened is not that, right? He made this movie that was like critically acclaimed, but got no love from awards. So then he kind of like retreated a little bit and kind of did his own thing and created kind of his own style based on that, which is pretty cool when you look back at all this work that you can, with a few exceptions, like you can almost always tell a Spike Lee movie. Like, I think the only one that like, almost doesn't feel like it was directed by him was 25th hour. Like aside from the one shot with Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, that feels very separate, but even like inside man, which is a straight up genre film still has enough of Spike Lee in it that you feel it as you're watching the movie. I mean, it is, uh, maybe an interesting slash depressing, uh, what if that you're pausing there? Um, I'm just going <laughs> to, sidestep that question because <laughs> uh, I would say like for Spike Lee um, doesn't really matter that much like he was he was an established name and was doing he had already won in the sense that he's doing the projects he wanted to do and he had his name above it his name meant something right. um, the problem would be the the you know young black directors who did not produce something like do the right thing right and you know maybe they all they produced was she's got to have it and right, right something like that they 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 you're going to have to produce something as great as do the right thing to even struggle to get financing for Malcolm X right. that's like the reward is a struggle to do that but if you don't produce a, an all-timer classic right um then yeah you probably just aren't working i mean we have a filmmaker right. coming up next month uh, where we're going to talk a lot about that 
as yeah. far as uh, having a, an independent success and then the struggle. And I'm not just putting this out there as a nomination because because of that struggle. I only have to watch five movies, but it's also pretty fucking nice. I will admit that. <laughs> so that's a perfect transition. So, Mike, who is your choice uh, for February? Who are, we, who are we coming in February? The auteur behind Eon Flux. <laughs> I'm sure I saw you, you I'm bastard. Sure. Uh, you tweeted out, like, now watching, and, like, you even, like, put in there, like, I ex- fully expect, like, why response mm-hmm. tweets. And, um, and this is, yeah, coming, kind of this is me. coming from someone who owns Eon Flux. I have, I have the Blu-ray of that, so... But every time I've watched it, that's and the subject comes on, like, oh god, what a piece of shit! Why are you watching that? So just preparing for that. Yeah, uh, my selection for next month is uh, Karen Kusama. Yeah, uh, because and I, I think I surprised you because I'm like, uh, what had I seen? I had only seen Girl Fight coming into this. Wow, interesting. And what it, what caused it was I read an article about sort of like. Here's the director that made this and this and this, and here's how it's been a struggle for nearly two decades to make five films. And I remember seeing Girl Fight when I was a teenager, and it's sort of a depressing and sort of like you know checking myself to where I watched Girl Fight, and I'm like, oh, whoever made that probably they just worked for the rest of their days, you know, right. they've just been working yeah. as a filmmaker. That was good. Everyone liked it, and so. This is more, I think, in line with uh, when we started this project, you said that you wanted to check out stuff, like check off your list. Mm-hmm. So this is me. Like, I just want to sort of answer the question for myself, like, what happened? What happened here? <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, I will I will get the article. I will have some stuff like written out because it was it was fascinating and brutally honest and very insightful from Miss Kusama. So, uh, yeah, I'm interested in uh, checking out her five films and one we will mention her part of an anthology. Yes. That's the one little extra bonus bit. All right. No, for sure. So, so, yeah. so the movies we're covering, uh, which are the only movies that she has directed, sadly, uh, girl fight, Eon flux, Jennifer's body, the invitation and destroyer. Um, so I think we'll be coming at this from very different perspectives because, um, you had only seen uh girl fight and the only ones I hadn't seen were girl fight and destroyer. Um, so interesting that you picked this filmmaker and I've seen more of her work than you have, but you know, I'm looking forward, uh, looking forward to this because I do think it's, you know, we talked about this off mic, but it's important for us, like, as film fans to seek out female directors, uh, because they are not given the same amount of opportunity and it is, it can be like harder than you would expect to find movies by female directors, even for people like us who watch a lot of movies, you do have to seek out. And I think the female perspective on, you know, we'll talk about this next month, but there's a lot of perspective on like rage and grief uh, in Kusama's movies that you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't find from a male director. So I think those perspectives are valid and important. So I'm looking forward to February where we can talk about all that. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's me saying I'm part of the problem, right? Cause I liked girl fight back in 2000. It made no Never effort whatsoever <laughs> to follow this woman's career, but yeah, I think you you said like off mic, uh, this this uh, challenge, uh, fifty two fifty two films, films by, by women, women. Mm-hmm. and you just sort of assumed you already had that checked off because you've watched four thousand movies this year, right. and uh, no, nope. it's like it, you kind of have to be an active 
supporter and what uh, you preach, or at least what you think you're preaching about yourself. Like, right. yes, I support women filmmakers. Uh, apparently, you and I do not. Yeah. We're just so, going to make a podcast about them. Yes, exactly. So <laughs> this is our way of kind of passing that along to you. If you're following along with our show, be sure to check out Karen Kusama's work, because if you haven't seen any of her movies, then uh, now you will have seen five. If you if you kind of... Uh, you know, stay stay on task with us and check out these movies so we can have that conversation. All right, so next month we'll be talking about Karen Kusama. Uh, in the meantime, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, uh, you can follow us at DirectedByPod, and you can donate to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcastdirected.